The Dental Download Podcast is your source for insight into dental school, conversations with dentists, specialists, and leaders in the industry. With new episodes every Monday morning, I'm your host, Haley Schultz. Let's get into this week's episode. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay. Hi, everyone. So we have a guest here today, and I'm going to let Andrew introduce himself. Can you just talk a little bit about how you got started in dentistry, uh, why you chose dental hygiene? Yeah. Yeah. Um, good morning. Thank you for having me. First of all, um, you know, it's as a podcaster myself, it's fun to be on this side of the the microphone and, you know, get a chance to kind of explain my, my personal journey and the things that I, you know, I want for dentistry. And uh, I apologize to your audience right now. My voice isn't normally this low and scratchy, but we went to Chicago midwinter. We did a ton of podcasting. And so it's a little bit kind of like burnt out a little bit. So I apologize about that. But um, yeah, so, you know, I'm a dental hygienist by trade. Um, I, I wish I had that really cool story about like, you know, I had this one hygienist that just like touched my heart and led me on the path of righteousness to dental hygiene. It just didn't happen that way. I had, you know, great clinicians, great experiences my whole life, but, um, you know, it was just simply my brother and I are both dental hygienists and he's my older brother and said, Hey, let's go do this thing. And uh, dentistry was a, a pathway that we were looking at. I was going to be an oral surgeon. He was going to be a periodontist. And then, you know, we were kind of later to the game when we came into dentistry. And so we were both in our early twenties and he already had, I think three kids at the time. And, you know, you can imagine this, like trying to go through dental school with three kids and a mortgage and trying to figure out all this stuff already. I mean, it's already hard enough not having all that going to dental school. And so we um we went through the the hygiene pathway. We got some advice from someone to say, hey, you know, look into hygiene. And um, you know, we were just surprised by the scope of practice that we had in Washington State that we were allowed to do, you know, shots and fillings and all that kind of stuff as well. And, you know, it just it hit all the buttons that we wanted for creativity and science and patient interaction, communication, that it was just a really good fit for us. And so we ended up on that path, but uh, you know, the thing that happens after a few years is uh, I think a lot of dental professionals will say, you know, you get that like seven year itch, right? Like, okay, we need to change something after seven years. What's going to, what's going to be different and new. And that really hit me hard probably by about year four <laughs> instead of seven years. And, uh, and so I wanted to take the business training and, and the things that I already knew and figure out how to incorporate that into dentistry. And try and you know coach up my my doctors and my practices and you know my friends to just be really successful in dentistry. And so, after several years, I shifted into kind of more of like a a leader mentor kind of kind of role, regional. And then the last two years, I was actually the D, uh, a uh, director of dental hygiene for a DSO. And so, um, and, and we don't need to probably get into the the weeds on that one, but I I left that practice about six months ago when I sold the podcast company that I developed. And so then there's been all these other things that have happened since, but 
Um, that's my really long explanation of my journey in dentistry, but I tell you what, there's nothing that makes me happier than talking dentistry. I've been doing it for the podcast for the last seven, almost eight years. And we put out, you know, three episodes every week. Like you just, you'd think that we'd run out of things to say about dentistry and you just can't like, there's too many cool things and too many cool people in dentistry. So anyway, that's my story. Wow. Thank you for giving us such a rundown and you have gone through so many different elements of dentistry and probably met so many great people along the way. So that is amazing. And I'm excited to pick your brain a little bit more about the hygienist dynamic in an office and how most of my listeners as dentists or future dentists can more successfully create those relationships and all for the betterment of the office too. So first thing I'm curious about, you talked about your personal journey in hygiene um, over the years and now kind of into like almost consulting and like helping practices grow. How has just the scope of dental hygiene changed over the years? I, you know, there's lots of things we can talk about here. I think the the low-hanging fruit that everyone always talks about is, oh, technology changes. It's true. Okay, technology changes, but that's not really going to be, I mean, you guys will see stuff as future docs that's going to be, you know, game changing, but a lot of that stuff has already kind of happened, right? So lasers and, you know, digital scans and 3D printing and all of that stuff is already here. It's just developing and actually making its way down to the offices in a way that's pretty normal. And that wasn't happening 15 years ago. And I think also the small practices, this, the single doctor practices, the non-DSO practices are implementing a lot of that same stuff too, where I think before it was either the really, really high-end multi-million dollar practices that could afford to do that, or it was these large group practices that were able to build, build this suite of software and hardware at a relatively low cost because they were buying multiples of it, right? So I think that everyone's leveling up their game. And before, 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 I think even before my time, you know, you go into the, de the dental office and you sit in the chair and doctor's like, well, you got this problem. We're going to, we're going to fix it. There's not really a dialogue. And I think the communication has changed quite a bit. I think with, you know, patient reviews and, and other reasons, I think that doctors are getting better about communicating the whys behind what we do. Um, we talk about cavities a lot, right? We got a cavity. We got to, we got to put a filling in it. Well, that's sure. I mean, people know that, but why do they have cavities? And I think before the doctors weren't so much a prevention specialist, you know, they're just like, Hey, let's just, you know, treat this, this problem. But they weren't really incentivized also to be a prevention specialist. And now I think they are finding out that there's plenty of work to be done, no matter how great someone's hygiene is or, or, or what they're doing. There's plenty of dollars in there still in dentistry on the business side that they can still really partner with their patients in a meaningful way and really try and get them to change their, their bad habits. And I think that's, that's really cool. I, I've also seen one of the things I think that is super important that any practice should have is, is like a SOP or standard operating procedures or protocol because workflows make it so that everyone's on the same page. So the communication with the patient's really good, but the communication with your dental team is really good too, right? You need to be able to understand, okay, office manager, this is your scope. This is your role. This is what I need you to be doing every single day. And likewise, office manager, you should be able to communicate with me, the doctor. What am I doing wrong? Like, what do I need to communicate better to you? And, and it's a two-way street. It's not this top-down hierarchy thing that used to be, you know, the past. And I think that, you know, hygienists and, and assistants, I think for so long, it's been, you know, very much a, a top-down like communication skill. Like, I think hygienists still get a little bit like their feelings hurt, 
you know, if the doctor's like just grumbles, you know, something at them or, you know, says one remark that was, you know, maybe ill-timed or whatever, because I think that's the history of, of dentistry. But now when I'm working with the, you know, the newer, younger doctors, you can see that they're like concerned about that. They want to have a good working relationship with the teams. And I think that that is going to be, uh, I think, game changing. And it's not so much, I mean, yeah, everyone wants to come to work and have fun and all that kind of stuff too. But when we have like a healthy operating practice, doctors, if you're the owners, you're gonna make more money. I'm so sorry, but that's just the way it is. If you are good at communicating, the money's gonna come in. And I don't wanna keep talking about money, 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 because I think that's kind of weird coming from a hygienist. But but really, I mean, that's why we're all in dentistry right now. We're all in dentistry because this is, this is a profession, this is a, a job, if you will, that we wanna have a certain type of lifestyle. And I think the changes that have come through the years have been almost nothing but positive. I can't think of a negative thing that's out there. And I think when, you know, the doctors are looking at, you know, treatment plans, that's another thing that has completely changed in, um, in, in their approach. When I started, there were a couple of new younger doctors and they didn't really understand like that sequential treatment planning aspect. Even though I know you guys are taught that in school, doing it in real life is way different. And doing it a dozen times a day is real different. But now, as I see these these younger new grads come out, they have a pretty good handle on, you know, the sequence of how things should happen with a patient's mouth, whether it's going to be, you know, okay, we get rid of the pain and, and the, you know, the acute symptoms first. Um, when are we going to put do crown and bridge and implant and things like that? The major restorative. When are we going to do the minor restorative? When are we going to do the hygiene? When are we going to do, um, you know, kind of next level things? Um, I'm just really impressed, I, I guess, with the the way the education is happening. One thing I would, just as I continue to ramble on about this, would hope that would change, though, is I wish in the dental schools there was a little bit more partnership with the hygiene and assisting teams, because I don't think that that is talked about enough, and I don't think that that is probably demonstrated at all. I don't think that's if you're a visual learner and you want to like be able to copy that model, you don't ever see it in, in practice, and that's unfortunate. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, you don't get any experience with that till you're in a real office and yeah. then you're learning while you're trying to adjust to working for the first time too. <laughs> you know, it's a lot. Yeah. yeah, you touched on a lot of great points there, especially how even myself, again, we don't have a lot of interaction with the hygiene students at our dental school, but I still know how crucial the dentists view hygienists for their hygiene work, but also like you were saying, kind of laying out what they notice for that exam and helping with diagnosis. So is there a good maybe process or advice that you have for new grads going into an office to communicate with the hygienist, how they would like things presented or things they want them to look for? Or do you recommend just opening learning from the hygienist? Cause they are often been there longer. It kind of depends. I, I would love the latter to be the truth, but, but unfortunately not every hygienist is the same and they weren't, the expectation for them hasn't always been that. And so if they're coming from a place where the expectation is like, Hey, 
you do your job, get out of my way. And then the new, you know, the new doctor entering that practice is like, oh, well, I guess I'm just going to take over and do everything. I would say if I was a new doctor, go walking to a practice, I would say, first things first, just get to know everybody, get to know their backgrounds, be a human first, right? That's the most important thing. Also, it's really important at that time to kind of establish the fact that you are the doctor, that you do have expectations, um, but acknowledge your the the chances that you're going to fail. I don't think that any of us have ever expected any new grad to ever be perfect, but I think a lot of new grads expect to be perfect. And I think that that's detrimental. I think that hurts you in the long run to think that way. We think even about, you know, restorative dentistry, restorative dentistry isn't hundred percent, no matter what, like just, there's no dentist out there that even if they've been practicing for 30 years that has hundred percent, no problems with any of the restorations. It just doesn't happen. And so I think partnering with your, your team saying, look, I know I'm a new grad or I know I'm you know new, new to this office, even, um, you know, I really want to do the best work and take care of people first. Like that's my number one priority. My number two priority is like a one and one a is to be profitable as a business. If you don't understand the business, let me help you understand how we can go about, you know, maximizing your time, my time and the way I like, like to practice, which is, um, I don't think it's like, maybe it's not a popular way of looking at it, but I think it's probably a really good way is, what is it? You work smarter, not harder, right? Like you don't want to be doing like spinning your wheels all the time, spending 30 minutes trying to convince a patient to do a class two restoration. Like you, you as a doctor don't have that time. So if the expectation is, okay, I'm going to teach my assistant how to communicate this, the need really well. And their time, I'm paying them $15, $20 an hour, whatever it is to spend time with that instead of my $500 an hour or whatever I'm supposed to be generating, talking to that patient. Like that's a really good use, but you have to have that communication, that expectation first. And I think that if you partner and tell them, I just want to take care of people, but we have to be profitable. Uh, If you have any concerns or questions, come to me, let's talk it through. There was this one time I had a conversation there's I was working with I think it was like three doctors in this practice and we're trying to establish the protocol of when after the patient does initial scaling root planning or, or periotherapy when do they come back for a reval right is it four weeks is it six weeks is it eight weeks like who, who like and who's right on all of that and so they said well Andrew what do you what would you what do you think I said well honestly doctor I don't know because this is how we've always done it and then this is how this other practice I heard does it and so I, I really don't know and so what we did is we all came together and we all brought research from all the different schools in the area that we're doing it knowing that that's probably between the the doctors and the hygienists most of them are coming from these you know western states or whatever and we established a protocol in our office based on everyone's input from the literature that's out there and that's a really great way to like figure out a way to collaborate and to establish like protocols and rules is just to talk together. No one's going to be perfect for sure. The, the hygienists aren't going to be perfect for sure. The assistants are going to be perfect, but they included us in on that conversation and we felt like we had a say. And so now when I'm going and doing my procedures and I'm like, Hey, six weeks, like we, we feel, we feel solid. I'm not worrying about, you know, is the other hygienist saying eight weeks is the other hygienist saying four weeks. It's just really, uh, it puts everyone at ease. I think. Yeah, that's exactly going back to what you were saying before too, like having those systems in place, but allowing the whole team to have input and feel comfortable with what you're doing. Because I think it's a recipe for disaster and for someone to quit if you're forcing them to practice in a way that they don't agree with, especially if there's actually literature backing up the way that they are thinking and feeling. So that's definitely important. And I feel 
like it would be challenging, especially as an associate coming into an office that has established systems. If you see things that could improve, when do you think it's appropriate to make suggestions? Like how long should you just be nice and meet everybody and put your head down and work? And then when can you start making suggestions? That's a great question. I will tell you that I don't have a great answer for that. I'll tell you what I think, but I've unfortunately, I've, I've been a little bit known to be on the nose on things. And I'm one of those like, Hey, day one, I'll be like, now, why are we doing it this way? Like explain to me the thought process behind it. And, and I think you are going to get probably a little bit of a reputation of, of being someone who's like always questioning and whatever. But I think that's a little bit healthier than the, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way it has to be. Like, I don't, I don't like that. I don't subscribe to that thought either. So if you if you can figure out a way of nicely being like, hey, can you explain to me when we have this situation, why are we doing it like this? If someone has a great answer and it's right, well, then there you have it. That's why we do it. But if they don't, then maybe you can just kind of like internalize that. And, and if it's not really that big of a deal, like I would say if it's not hurting, you know, patient care or it's not um, impacting your schedule. So you're not running behind more often because of this thing that maybe isn't the right thing to do. I would say just put it on the back burner for now build that trust, build those relationships and, and do it. But if there's any chance that it's impacting patient care, if it's, um, I'm not sure if in the schools or you guys are talking about silver diamine fluoride or anything like that yet, but SDF applications is kind of a, a bigger thing. The last couple, several years, everyone's been talking about it. And, you know, there's lots of different ways to apply it and when to apply it and how do you apply it and, and what's who's doing that? Is it the doctors at the hygienist and different states have different laws and, and all of these different things? And I think it's appropriate that you as the doctor, if you're not, if you don't know SDF as well as you think that you should, you should be asking questions. And if you don't like the, what you're finding in your own research and, and things like that, at the end of the day, you're still responsible for that patient care, right? And so you still need to be able to talk about it. Now, if you're in a DSO setting, a lot of times DSOs will have um, like a senior or managing doctor or, or someone in that, in that practice or in that region and you'll have that kind of mentorship. You can ask them like, hey, what about this? And get the information that you need, I think, from them. But if you don't have that, you're absolutely within your right to always like err on the side of safety for your patients. Mm-hmm, exactly. And it's such a fine line of being confident that you are a doctor still versus being respectful to everyone else in the office. But exactly what you're saying, when it's a question of patient care and safety, then it needs to be addressed right away. So I totally agree. Yeah. You mentioned in your intro for us, you started in Washington state and now you're down in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. So I noticed that you were talking about how in Washington, hygienists are able to do um, simple fillings. And I know state by state, all the different rules for hygienists, expanded function dental assistants, and traditional dental assistants are super different of what they can and can't do. Mm-hmm. I've only really familiarized myself with my state, Michigan. So could you talk about some of the different, I know it's so different state to state, but just some of the things that hygienists can do depending what state that they're in. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Yeah, this and this is so absurd and ridiculous. And I mean, I, I do feel bad for the doctors that are out there trying to figure out like the scope of practice for especially if you're hold license in multiple states. Um, in Washington State, it's it's a little bit unique. I know that one of the best, that in Oregon, um, since I am from that area. So in Washington, as we're going through our, our programs, it's just in the program to do restorative. Now, we are not prepping. We're not removing two structure. That's in the laws that we're not allowed to remove any two structure. But for example, you know, if I'm, you know, if I'm placing a composite or whatever, and we can do all classes and all materials and all that kind of stuff. But if I'm placing a composite and like I, I don't close them, you know, the, the contact the way I should have, as long as I'm not touching the tooth, I can re-prep out that composite part as long as I'm not removing two structure and start again, do it. So when we can use high speeds, we can use slow speeds, we can use all of the different tools to do the job. In order for us to do that, though, you know, we have to go through, you know, the educational process and the education, by the way, from state to state and program to program is also different, which is just ridiculous. So it was really we had essentially two years of prereqs that was almost all science before we even went and got accepted into the hygiene program. So you're taking all these courses like, please, please, please let me get in. They might have hundreds of applicants that don't want to take 18. And so. Um, you know, so once you're in, you do all the stuff and then you, you know, it's really hygiene and restorative focused, and then you have to take board exams on restorative as well. So it's not like willy nilly, let's just let them go do their thing. Now there's also, uh, in other States, like weekend courses, <laughs> like, Hey, let's do a weekend course on how to put it in a composite and we're, you know, we're good to go. And you take a board exam, you're good to go. Those ones make me a little bit more nervous because they don't talk about like all the science behind it. And like, there's, there's such, it's such a craft to put in, you know, restorations properly and know about, you know, clues of forces and loads and, you know, stringage dress and all that kind of stuff. And they just don't teach that. I don't think to the, to the right way. Um, and then in, in Oregon, you know, with their, within their license, they have what they call like your, your hygiene license. And then you have endorsements for restorative endorsements for local anesthesia endorsements for, uh, I think nitrous as well. And then other states, I think there's only a handful of other states that will allow you as a hygienist to do it. And I, and I probably don't know them off the top of my head. I think Maine has one. Um, I think Minnesota has a dental therapist model, which is not really a dental hygienist at all. It's like the next level up. It's between the doctor and the hygienist, I, I think, on the hierarchy of the scope of practices. But um, in Florida, you know, we they just got um, the ability to place local anesthesia, I think, in 20. Oh, maybe get this wrong, but I think 2011. It might've been like 2015, but uh, so they're rel relatively newer. And so what I've noticed is the doctors in Washington, you know, my, the doctors I worked with, they would just be cool with me just doing whatever. Uh, Andrew, Hey, we, we have a filling that's going to be over here. So once you're done with your patient over there, can you go numb them up? I'll prep it. And then can you push the filling in? I'm gonna go do this other thing. And we, there's like this really great, like choreography of, of everyone moving around, like just getting all the work done as much as we can for all of our patients all the time. But here, I've noticed even when I've tried to, you know, help a doctor out and be like, Hey doctor, I'm going to do this, you know, local anesthesia for you real quick. And they're like, Oh, are you sure you're doing it? I'm like, well, I mean, I've been doing it for a long time, doctor. <laughs> you know, is it okay if I do it? Like, I'm not going to kill anybody. There's been no documented case of anyone killing anyone's local anesthesia in Washington for, I think we'd had it in the seventies. Um, so 50 plus years or whatever. And so, you know, it's just, it's, it's this weird, like, I feel for the doctors of trying to figure out, like, what are they allowed to do and what are they not allowed to do? So my advice on that, like having that long preamble is, you know, really just dive into the practice act for your state, figure out if you can use an EFTA. And, and EFTA also means different across different states too. Our EFTAs place fillings. Some EFTAs don't, they are just now allowed to polish a tooth or something like that. Some are so weird of like what the laws are, but I would say di really dig into your practice act. But 
The important thing is utilize your auxiliary staff to the highest of their scope of practice in whatever state you can. The purpose of that is to doctors, you need to be alleviated of the stress of the timing of all of these things. I would say, um, was that trust, but verify, right? So trust in your team, but double check their work, especially at the very beginning. Um, you know, I, every time I worked with a new doctor, I always had them check my feelings first before I dismissed them for a little while. And then once they're like, oh yeah, Andrew, I don't, I don't have time to check your feelings anymore. Just let them go. Like that was, that felt really good. But doctors, you have more important things to be doing. You guys should not be doing, let me check for every little bit of plaque buildup from a polish from an assistant. You know, like you, you just shouldn't be doing all that stuff. And so if you're really looking at maximizing and streamlining your practice, use all of your staff to the very, very highest of their ability. I think also you're going to have a lot better retention because it's the hygienist that is stuck in the scraping mode that isn't allowed to talk about like airway or isn't allowed to talk about, there's a thing uh, called perioprotect. I don't know if you've ever run perioprotect, but it's this thing for, you know, obviously periodontally involved patients. And if I'm not allowed to talk to my patients about that, cause I know it's going to heal them. Like I'll get like burnt out and just like, oh, I'm so bored in my job. I'm gonna go find somewhere else. That's going to allow me to do the thing that I want to do. And no, I don't get paid by perioprotect. You can edit that out if you want, but no, I'm not compensated by them. It's just, it's a product that really works. And you know, it's something that was, it was a talking point that I could talk to my patients with. And I, I felt alive when I was talking to them about that kind of stuff. So anyway. So we covered a lot. I appreciate that. Um, I have a few other things I want to talk about before we wrap up a few, just about still like that dynamic between dentists and hygienists in an office. And I mean, everything you were saying was so interesting because I think about the hygienists hygiene students at my dental school that we interact with. And they're so excited that they can do local anesthetic in Michigan. That's going to be great. I, I mean, I don't know if they even know at other States, they could do restorations if they got licensed somewhere else and everything. So it's just interesting. Cause I honestly didn't know that till today. So thank you for teaching me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course. I think there's a workflow about that too. I think, yeah. You know, you, you have to learn the schedule. Uh, you know, what the one of the schedules that I really like that doctors will end up doing is, and then if you're looking at your um, your software, that first column, that first chair, whatever you call it, on the left-hand side of the doctor should be your major restorative, right? That should be all of your extractions, your crown and bridge, your dentures, your all that kind of stuff. And then that second column should be your overflow column. Again, assuming that you have someone that can place restoration. So this is going to be your simple class twos. And it could be a couple of class twos in the same appointment, you know, one-hour appointment. It could be um, also like your crown seats and just things that maybe don't have like a dollar amount attached to it, but it takes you a few minutes. One of my doctors, he was really good at this. He would say, okay, Andrew, I want you, everything, everything has to be out. Like I want the cement out. I want this. I want this. He would come in. He would check it first without the the cement. And then he would, you know, I would mix the cement and get handed over to him. Cause in that practice, I was also kind of like dental assistant, kind of like whatever had to happen. Like I was just the utility person. And so I'd mix it for him. He'd put it in, he'd place it on there. He'd have him bite on a, on a, a two by or cotton roll. And then he'd say, okay, Andrew, after you know three minutes, I want you to check. I want you to clear everything. And then I want to come back and check it. No problem. So the doctor was in there for what? Two minutes tops. Like it was so awesome that the doctor could pop in and then go back to that first column, that major restorative column. And then he would also, because he was crazy, he had, he had a third column also that was like emergencies. And so he would also have like, extractions. But again, 
I did all the intake forms. I had all the consent signed. I did the, the x-rays. I took the x-ray to his op and said, doctor, this is this, you know, here's the x-ray. This is what the patient wants. Um, there's like an extraction or whatever. He'd say, okay, go numb up. I'd go numb up the patient. And the doctor would come in. Hey, I'm doctor. So-and-so blah, blah, blah. We have, this is, uh, this is what I heard that you said. Are you sure that's what you want? And they said, yep. And so he, and he was also really good at extraction. So he'd pop that thing out in less than five minutes, go about his day. And he just made $300. And, and it was so like, it was so amazing how they could do it. And you can set up your hygiene column very similar. If you wanted to do accelerated hygiene, which is, you know, there's pros and cons to that, but you have your major hygiene, your, your perio hygiene, your first column, and then your profies like you know, scattered throughout your second column. And your hygienist can kind of go in and out with their, with the assistant. The assistant can do all the intake forms and do all of that. The hygienist can come in and do the actual procedures and then bounce to the next patient that the assistant has already gotten. Now that assistant goes back and cleans up that, that first room. And they have this like magical back and forth, back and forth. And they're both like really productive and they're both really happy because they're doing good work and they're getting paid pretty well to do that, you know? And so I think there's a dynamic that can be set forth as long as you're figuring out like how to manage that time, because the, the worst thing is I'm over here saying doctors do more, do more, do more. And they're like, I can't really even keep up with what I have now, but it's, you can, if you put them in the right columns, I think. Mm -hmm. And you're mentioning all that increased opportunity and responsibility for the auxiliary staff and specifically for hygienists when they have all these extra roles are people still being paid hourly just a higher rate or mm -hmm. are you seeing more offices do production based and which do you think is best that's a great question because i i think i'm on record in early podcasts being so anti production for everybody and the reason was i did, i was in a model that was did it i think just did it perfectly they they paid their their um their doctors really well but it was on their bonuses were on things that were not production based. And I really, it's like, how well are you taking care of patients? Are they coming back? And all that kind of stuff. The, the things that really drive a business practice, which I thought was awesome. And so what I was in, in that time, I was like, Hey, this telling people that they have to do more procedures on people is going to lead to corruption and like people doing dishonest, you know, dentistry and especially in hygiene. I'm like, how am I supposed to do more, more perio than I'm already doing? But what I found is that I was wrong in just about every facet of that. <laughs> um, it, it was the period percentages are so messed up. You know, in the practices that I was working in, it was like 15%, but we know it's got to be at least 50%. And so where are all those patients and what was I doing wrong? But it was on that assessment. And so I think, you know, that if there's, if you could have a base, a base pay that the hygienist would agree to that if they didn't meet their production for that day, that they were still able to achieve a good income, great. But if um, if you don't, then I would say that the, that I think for doctors, it's what 30, 35% usually is kind of what their, or for an associate is kind of what their pay rate is. You probably be, got to be around the same rate for a hygienist. Um, if they can, you know, if they're producing 1500 or $2,000 a day, that's pretty decent, I think, for most practices. And, and there's lots of opportunity there and it's, you can do it way ethically. Um, you could do a, a ton of adjunct therapy that um, is again, the good kind of adjunct therapy, not the, the bad kind of adjunct therapy in Washington state though, when I was doing all the restorative stuff, all the hygienists were restorative hygienists. Everyone that went to school in Washington state and graduated, they're all restorative hygienists. And so I, what we just call each other hygienists. We call each other restorative hygienists, but you don't, so you don't get paid on necessarily on production 
because you're doing restorations as well. Now, I'm sure there are practices that do that, but by and large, you just got paid a really good wage. And if your day was mixed with perio and, you know, just profies and then uh, restorative, like that's just your day. You don't get paid differently. And I like that model probably the most for me. Um, but Washington also has one of the highest pay wages for, for hygiene. So, you know, there, there's a lot of expectation there that they are going to help out, that they're going to do more than just the, um, you know, the, the profi mill kind of like polish, polish, polish all day long and, you know, get your little $20 reimbursements for these little profi things. So, um, gosh, you know, it's just a hard answer. Like, I, I really want to say I, I love production, but then now I'm thinking as I'm talking it through, I'm like, yeah, but there's that one hygienist that had like 98% perio rates. And I'm not sure how she did that. <laughs> and there's just like, as long as there's like a checks and balances in there. And I think that that part of that comes on you doctors as well. Like if you guys will make sure you're keeping up with your perio courses and stuff like that, there's, you have so many courses that you have to keep up with outside of, you know, school. Um, if you guys can also keep up with like the perio numbers and like what percentages you should have, even if that means bringing in a consultant or doing something like that, um, that can help reassure your hygiene department that 50% isn't too high for perio, you know, that that's a, a good healthy mix in there. And that could, that could really do an audit on all of your guys's um, schedules for your, for your hygiene. I think that would be really healthy. And that way you can still also have the production and feel good about it. And you mentioned something there that again, I see as a challenge in an office. If you're bringing in new patients who previously were at a dentist forever, they mm -hmm. often it's information overload of actually this couple of fillings could be redone and maybe they are a perio patient and they just never knew. How do you go about that conversation, especially from you, the hygienist, what would you communicate to that patient? It's a tough one, right? Because you don't, you don't want to throw your fellow clinicians under the bus and you definitely don't want to be known as that practice that does that because dentistry is small and you, even in a big city, you will absolutely be labeled as that person that is, contradicting all of your dental professional friends. And so the, the way that I would, I would handle is, is two things. One, I worked in a practice where the doctor and I were on the same page with a lot of things. And we were almost had like a forgiveness discount for all of these patients that would be coming in from whatever other office that weren't diagnosed properly. We know that they weren't diagnosed properly, that we wouldn't charge them the full fees. There would be a somewhere in between fee, but we would still call it a perio procedure. We still had to diagnose that this is perio. And so we would still tell them like, Hey, I'm not really sure what happened. All I can tell you is what I'm seeing right now. Um, I think that that, you know, the, the people that you saw before probably did the best that they could with what they had. I think you're stable. I think we can get you healthier or whatever the, the words that we're going to use, but let's look at this bone loss. Let's look at the objective, objective information here. We have bone loss. We have, you know, pockets with bleeding. We have all of this and focus over here on this computer that has all of the chart stuff and get away from you and your face. And then that other office, like don't take it away from us as, as individuals and look at the science and the data instead, because of this, when we have this and this and this, this is now the diagnosis that we have. And this is the procedure we're going to do because of that diagnosis. Now, because you're coming from another office, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. Um, you know, we love those guys over there. So we're going to give you a discount and whatever, whatever. And I think there's a way to like smooth it over. But what you can't do is if it's a paro patient, say, we're going to charge you a profi fee and we're going to call it a profi. That's where the, the dangerous part comes in because now you as a doctor have a liability because you didn't diagnose properly. And then, then if they go from you to somewhere else, 
And that person throws you to the wolves and says, Hey, you know, board of you know dentistry, these guys aren't doing it right. Like you're going to be in trouble <laughs> with that. Yeah, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. And I think that was great advice for us to practice. And another thing you mentioned when we were talking about compensation was bonuses. So quickly before we wrap up, mm-hmm. I would love to know some ways that you think or have seen successful incentivization for the team to make more money for the office. Basically, what types of bonuses, trips, time off do you find motivates the employees the most? Yeah, cash is king. Uh, I will absolutely tell you that. You go to any of the hygiene forums, and especially around the end of the year, they say, okay, well, what did we get? And someone's like, well, I got a gift card for $20 or whatever. They're like, well, you know, we wish we would have had that in cash because I don't want to go to Kohl's or Best Buy or whatever, whatever the gift card is for. Um, unless Amazon. Amazon gift cards still, I think, hold true. I think everyone likes, likes Amazon. But cash is where it's at. And I think... Um, the the people who have set forth an, a yearly office goal that it's achieved and there's a high payout, $500, something like that, something like really, really big is huge. Um, and that's, for, I guess, for the end of year. I don't so much hear anymore about, I guess I probably should have said this when you said like what has changed over the years. There's not really trips that are being taken as like a, a thank you. And there, there are some, but a lot of them are associated with CE. So, uh, you know, you as doctors should obviously always take your teams with you for CE. Uh, there's a way to do it and there's a wrong way. We can talk about that another time probably, but um, that shouldn't be the incentivization. I think, you know, you can either have daily goals, weekly goals, monthly goals, yearly goals, whatever you want to do and, and have a money payout for that. What I would look at as a practice owner is I would say, look, you have to be doing at least three times, you know, your wages. If you're not doing at least three times your wages, then it's not really worth giving someone a bonus, in my opinion. And so if you had a daily counter and say, look, if you got above, you know, $2,000, I'll give you $100, you know, for every day that you do that, you'll be surprised how many hygienists can bust that out. And by the end of the month, you're like, holy crap, I paid them $700 in bonus this year or this month. Um and then, you know, you also have to be careful because sometimes um, if you do it on someone who is only working like part-time, you know, like you can't have a bonus based on how many patients they have because it's like they're only part-time. And so you have to make it fair. The other way that they do it is just on product sales. I don't love the product sales one, but it's, you know, for every, you know, $70 electric toothbrush you sell, you get $5 commission from it. I, I really don't like those ones is because you start pushing things that, you know, people don't need. Um and then there's also ones about procedures. And so it's like the adjunctive therapy. So if you do like a rest in for every arrest in that you place, then you'll get like $5 or whatever too. I also don't love those ones either. Cause I feel like it incentivizes the wrong thing. But if you have like a big picture production goal, I think that's probably the healthiest way to do it. Perfect. That makes a lot of sense. So I think I mentioned to you, most of my office, it, my office, my listeners are dental students and pre-dental students. So do you have any closing advice, words of wisdom you want to end off the show with? Yeah, look, I mean, I think you guys come into like one of the most marvelous, wonderful, bestest professions ever. You know, I think there's so much there. But like I said earlier, no one expects you to be perfect. And I really don't want you to come in with any sort of attitude that you have to be perfect. You don't. We we are here to help you. Your hygienist wants you to succeed. Your dental assistant wants you to succeed. Your if you're not the practice owner, then everyone wants you to succeed. Everyone wants this for you. 
Um, but you have to learn from your mistakes and you have to learn quickly. I would advocate, and it's kind of maybe a little bit racy or whatever, but like, I want you guys to all go to DSOs first. And it so, sounds so weird, but it's going to teach you your speed and it's going to teach you your skill. And if you, if you learn early that DSOs aren't for you, you got that out of the way, you know, you got that out of the way in your career. What we see in DSOs is younger people and then middle of career people leave for a while. And then they come back in their twilight, you know, part of their profession. You already know what to expect if you decide to come back later too, by doing it early. So there's so many upsides to like DSO stuff um, that I think we get, you know, we're always crapping on DSOs and all this stuff. But I think the doctors that come through there are so much better prepared for their own office because they've had a year or two years or whatever of like in the trenches. So just keep an open mind to all that. And then also just think about right now what you want your perfect office to be and how are you going to get there? You have to start mapping it out now. And if that's, you know, training and you want to start doing, you know, sinking implants all day long, that's, that's your model. How can you do that? Go follow those social media accounts of people that are doing that already and start taking more courses. You can't, don't expect to know everything, you know, just from school, you have to take a ton of courses afterwards, and you're going to be spending thousands and thousands of dollars to fly out to these courses and just expect that that's going to be the norm. If you do those things, I swear to you, you're going to be so, so good. I promise you. Thank you so much for that. And for all of your wisdom today, I feel like we could have many more episodes and many more things I could pick your brain about, but can you uh, give people the best way to reach out to you if they have questions and your podcast? Yeah, sure. I mean, the best way to reach out is Andrew at a tale of two hygienists.com. Um, and that is the, the name of the podcast is called the tale of two hygienists. I would really appreciate doctors for and future doctors. If you just send your staff my way, you can listen to it too. We're, we had um, at Chicago midwinter. We recorded one on salivary diagnostics. We recorded one on um, substance abuse disorders and we did like this fun little role play where I was the the drug addict and, and all of these things. There's it's bigger picture. It's not just about like perio perio perio. We cover everything. Um, and so yeah, send your your auxiliary staff my way. Like I would really appreciate that. They can find it on you know Spotify, Apple, wherever wherever they get their podcasts. All right, thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you. Appreciate it.